Hello, in this lecture we're going to talk about the audit planning stage of the audit. At the end of this we will be able to list the steps involved in the preliminary engagement of the audit, explain information included in an engagement letter and why the engagement letter is important, discuss how the work of an internal auditor can be used within our audit process, explain the steps in planning an audit and describe the materiality, the concept of materiality and what it is used for. So we're going to break the planning stage into three parts. So within the planning stage of the audits, we're going to break that planning stage into three parts. First is going to be the client acceptance or the continuance. Should we accept the engagement or should we accept the continuation of the engagement, either from a new client or a continuing client? Then we're going to talk about the preliminary engagement activities. And then we're going to actually talk about the plan of the audit. So when we start a new audit engagement, we're going to have two types of audits that we're going to be thinking about. One is going to be a new audit. We have a new client comes in. They're going to want an audit. This is the first audit we've ever had for this client. Or we can have another situation, which is probably much more common for an established firm, which is that we have clients that are going to roll over from year to year, from possibly quarter to quarter, and we're going to continue to do audits on an annual or quarterly basis. And in the second case, in the case of some auditor that we've audited before, we clearly have a lot more information about that firm. We know who the management is. We've done the audits before. Hopefully, if we, have a, if we have a good engagement, a good relationship, and we haven't found errors in the past, then it's going to be easier for us to roll that engagement forward, given the fact that we already have this understanding of the type of organization. We are, we've already looked at the internal controls. Now, there are going to be situations that we're going to want to pick up, and we'll talk about those a bit. But first, let's talk about the idea of the new engagement, what we want to take a look at when we get to a new engagement and then apply some of those to the continuing engagement. When we do have a new client, we want to vet the new client just basically as much as they're going to vet us when we don't want to do business with a new client because if a client uh, is, is not vetted and we go through a long process of an audit, many audits are going to take a fairly big chunk of time, a fairly time-consuming process, and we don't want to get to the end of the audit and realize that we can't give an, a good opinion, we have to give a bad opinion about the audit, or uh, terminate the engagement af after the audit starts. These are going to be situations where we're going to spend a lot of money, we're going to spend a lot of time and possibly not get paid in those types of situations. So it is very beneficial for us to first take a look at the client and vet the client, see we want to make sure that we're picking up the type of clients that we want to have the continuing business with. So in order to do that, we're going to obtain a review of financial information. We're going to do a kind of a preliminary review and see if there's anything that stands out to us in terms of the preliminary review of the financials. We want to uh, interview of third parties, so any third party interviews that we can take a look at. And in order to do this, we do want to ask the client for permission. We're going to ask client uh, to give permission to talk to third parties, possibly like a bank, possibly other people they've done business with. For sure, the prior auditor, if they had done prior audits. If this is the first year they've needed an audit, then they're not going to have any prior audit uh, engagements. But if they had prior audit engagements with other CPA firms, then we would like to talk to the other CPA firms and, and just get some overall uh, questions in terms of that. We would have to ask the client for permission to do that. And note, they could say no, they could not give us the permission. But if they did, then of course we don't have to accept the engagement. And we really would like this information in order to accept the engagement. If there's any problems with the prior auditor, if they had some disagreements, that doesn't mean that we cannot move forward with the engagement necessarily. But we do want to have an understanding of what those problems are so we can move forward appropriately and, and put all our time uh, in, the, in the best appropriate way. 
So if we uh, can get the conversation with the prior auditor, we're going to ask you know the questions, obvious questions being, you know, why did the uh, the audit terminate? Why did they leave and look for another auditor? Is it just the rate that happened, the pay rate, or something like that in terms of the fee for the audit, or what? Are there some disagreements uh, that uh, the audit had with the management, the audit firm had with the management? Are there any ethical issues? Are there any problems with the ethics that could be an issue for us and our engagements going forwards? So these are types of questions that we want to ask from, uh, you know, the prior management from the audit. So we also want to consider if there's any unusual circumstances that could increase risk. For example, if a business had a lot of pressure in order to get a favorable opinion on an audit in order to get a loan or something like that. Uh, again, that wouldn't say that we can have to terminate the audit or not accept the audit engagement, but we do want to take into consideration these types of risks. Or if the company had a going concern risk, meaning uh, it's questionable as to whether they will be able to continue business in the future because of financial concerns or the, or the environment. These are types of risks that we want to consider going into the engagement. We want to consider our independence in terms of our third-party independence when we take on a new client. So we want to be independent in terms of both appearance and in terms of form. And we'll talk a bit more about what independence is in the future. But some of the main things that are going to be in there, of course, is we don't want to have a substantial direct financial uh, investment in in the firm we don't want to have you know someone working for the firm especially ourselves if if we are doing a lot of the bookkeeping work and the management in the firm then it's very possible that we are not independent and therefore we shouldn't be conducting a third-party audit we need to consider if we have the technical skills in order to conduct the audit now when we think about technical skills we're also we're often thinking well of course we do we're auditors we know <laughs> we know the auditing process but notice we also need to think about the technical skills that are outside just the accounting in terms of what type of industry are we auditing? Have we audited this type of industry before? If we haven't audited this type of industry, do we have the skill level in order to pick up the information needed? What's the size of the audit? What's the scale of the audit? Uh, do we have the skill level to pick up that scale? So for example, if we're, if we're taking on a construction client uh, that does a, a percentage of completion type of uh, bookkeeping, in terms of revenue recognition, the question is, well, if we've never done that before, do we have the skill level to pick that up? Again, it doesn't mean we can't pick up the audit, but it does mean that we're going to have to adjust the way we're, we think about it. We're going to have to pick up that skill level. We're going to have to learn that information, maybe bring on some people in order to help to put that information together. We're going to have to extend the time frame on which the audit would have to be conducted, at least in the first few years until we get uh, good at this type of thing. Finally, we want to determine if there's any other thing that we haven't considered. So we want to take a step back and say, okay, is there anything else that we haven't considered within accepting this new uh, client that would be a problem that we should take into consideration? Now, when we think about a continuing client, let's take a step back and look at the continuing client rather than the new client when we're in terms of accepting the engagement. Every time we accept a new engagement, every time we have a new audit, we do want a new engagement letter. We want to treat it as a new engagement. But of course, the process in terms of doing that should be a bit more straightforward because a lot of the stuff we talked about prior, we've seen before. We know, we know the management. We know the type of industry they're in. We've got the technical skills, hopefully, at this point in time since we've done the audit before. So we're honing our, te our technical skills, but we have that information there. Therefore, the process to accept the continuing engagement should be easier. And remember that continuing engagements are going to be fairly typical because, of course, a lot of especially publicly traded firms they're going to need an audit yearly or quarterly, and that's going to just be routine that they're going to need that. If you're talking about non-publicly traded companies, it's a lot more common to have some type of engagement that will not be uh, continual. For example, if someone needs a loan or something like that, <laughs> or uh, you know some type of transaction that's going on that 
they need an audit for that particular transaction, then it's a lot more likely that uh, a smaller type of company will need a one-time kind of audit situation. But a publicly traded company or someone that constantly needs bonding or something like that or nonprofit organizations, they're going to need audits all the time. And so the, the process will be pretty, pretty much standardized there. We do want to review from time to time the audit engagement, however, and again, we do want to treat each new audit as a new uh, engagement and make sure that we're going through that engagement letter and putting the audit together. We also want to review it if we're having any kind of problems in terms of conflicts of interest between the management if we and uh, the audit. If the audit team has some disagreements about certain things that are being reported or any types of things within the audit process, then we want to reconsider you know, doing business or possibly the, the terms of the engagement and this type of thing. If there's disputes over fees, <laughs> we do have a problem with that because if, if we're not getting paid for a substantial amount of time and we're doing another audit, that could, in, that could make us uh, not independent in nature because basically the, C, the uh, company could, in essence, hold hostage our fees in order to get a favorable opinion if the fees become large enough. So, and that would be a problem. So we have to be aware of that. Once we have the acceptance, we want to move to the preliminary engagement activities. And the preliminary engagement activities are going to be things involved with the team. What type of team are we going to put together and involved with ethics and independent type issues? What are our independents in terms of the team that we're putting together? So when we think about the team that we're going to put together for a particular audit, we want to think about the training. Do they, do they have the proper training? And again, we want the proper training. It's not just that we want the most um, skilled individual on, on the, the, the most difficult audit in terms of they have the most experience auditing. We also want that skill level within the type of audit that they're having in certain cases. So if we're talking about a specialized industry or something that has a special case in it, then we probably want someone that has the specialty skill within that level to, to, to conduct that. Uh, the engagement size, if the, si if the engagement is larger or smaller, we're going to want to you know, have a bigger team or a smaller team. If there's a risk involved, the risk is higher or lower. If there's some, for some reason, there's a higher risk, possibly in terms of the type of industry that the, that the uh, audit is in or the company is in, or possibly the environment for this year for whatever is more volatile. And we, we assess the fact that there's going to be higher risk. Then we're going to want to put more experienced staff onto that audit or people that have experience with that type of situation, that type of risk that possibly is unusual this year. When we consider the audit team, note that we're clearly going to have people there that are going to run the audit team that are going to have the more experience on the audit process. And we're also going to have people there that are going to do more of the grunt work, more of the types of calculations that might not take as much independent thought. And the, the that type of work is going to be the type of work where we often say, hey, look at last year's working papers and let's try to figure out the same kind of processes and go through the same processes to work things out this year. When we're going to want more experienced people on a team is often going to be the cases where we can't look at last year's working papers because this year's different. If we have some type of situation where we have different things happening, uh, such as a new division in the, in the company happened or there's some kind of merger in the company that happened, then, of course, we're going to need people that are going to need to set up new processes and we're going to need people with more experience and the ability to set up those new processes, those new audit processes. When we think about ethical considerations, we're thinking about independence most of the time. So when we put the audit team together, we want to make sure that the audit team is independent. And again, they need to be independent both in terms of appearance and in terms of actuality. And these are going to be important because we are in the business of having a third-party audit. And the fact that we're a third-party audit means that people are depending on us because we're independent. That's going to be the thing they're depending on us for. And so it's we all often have this argument where 
we have an idea that I can be have an independent decision. I can go through the process and I can make an independent decision even though I may not be independent in uh, appearance. And that's clearly possible. It's possible that uh, we have a spouse that works for the company that we are auditing and they're the CEO of the company. Or it's possible that we have a son or daughter that works for the company. Or it's possible that we have a substantial amount of our money invested in the company that we're auditing and still be able to audit them in an independent nature going through the, the steps. But that doesn't look independent in appearance. So so we can't do that. So those types of things are things that, that we can't do. We need, we need to be in, independent in terms of our audit process. We need to be independent in appearance. So that means that things like uh, if we do have our spouse working on the company that as the CEO or something, we, we certainly don't want that person to be part of the audit team, uh, you know, leading the, the audit process of the company. And if we have a substantial investment in the company, it's a, it's a huge part of our portfolio, and we have a, a investment in the outcome of the audit opinion, then that's going to be a problem with our independence. And also, if we have the outstanding fees, if we have the outstanding fees out there, then that means that we have a, a financial investment in terms of collecting on the fees that could be held hostage. And if those fees get high enough, then of course that's gonna, gonna be a problem in terms of independence. Also, we wanna make sure that other types of engagements that we do for the client. So if we do a lot of engagements other than the audit, such as things like consulting and whatnot, there's gonna be a question as to whether that's gonna be a problem with the independence. For us to be independent to doing the audit, we cannot be basically manage, managing the company uh, through to helping with a substantial amount of decision making. And if we're making a substantial amount of our revenue uh, from the company in something other than the audit engagement, then that could be a problem as well. Now, when we start the audit, we want to have a good understanding of the engagement process with the client, with the company. So us, the auditors, want to have a good understanding of what our responsibilities are and what are the responsibilities of the client. The major tool that we want to use in order to do this will be the engagement letter. So the engagement letter is going to be outlining the engagement. And it's going to be really important because we want to have that, we want to be clear in terms of what's going to be the responsibility of management. What is it responsibility for them to do? And what is it our responsibility to do? And as we've discussed in prior lectures, one of the main responsibilities of managers is the financial statements. They're responsible for the financial statements. We're responsible for collecting evidence on which to build an opinion on the financial statements. The company is responsible for allowing us the access in order to build that evidence in order for us to be able to make that opinion. So so we want to make sure to put that down in writing. If it's a new client, for sure, we want to basically give them the uh, engagement letter. It'd be great. To, we want to have them sign the engagement letter. Probably want to sit down with the engagement letter and go over the engagement letter. If we have a continuing client, uh, we still want to make sure that we're going through that process of setting down the engagement letter and going through uh, those steps and doing our due diligence through uh, the engagement letter in that formal process. We also want to consider the role of the internal auditor. So if the client has an internal auditor, then we can use some of the audit work from the internal auditor as evidence for our audit, for our audit opinion. And the question is going to be, well, how much of that work can we rely on? Clearly, we can't rely all on the work of the internal auditor because they're not independent. They're, they're an employee of the company, and so they're not independent. So we, got to, we have to first understand what the internal auditor is doing and see if it relates to the audit. The internal auditor could be responsible for a lot of different types of things. We want to see if the internal auditor's work is related to our work, and then we can consider whether we can rely on some of the work from the internal auditor. 
Uh, if we're going to rely on some of the work, then we want to see if the work is good. We want to see if uh, the level of competence, basically, of the work that's being done. In order to do that, we might want to consider the approach of the work. How is the internal auditor uh, conducting their internal audits? And then consider, based on that, how much we can rely on the work from the internal auditor. We also want to have an understanding of the role of the audit committee in terms of the audit process. So the audit committee is going to be a subcommittee of the board of directors responsible for the financial reporting and disclosure. So the audit committee requirements under Sarbanes-Oxley for publicly traded companies are going to include that each member must be a member of the board of directors. So the subcommittee of the board of directors being the audit committee must be members from the larger uh, board of directors. They are responsible for the appointment, compensation, and oversight of the work of any registered public accounting firm employed by the company. Uh, they must pre-approve all audit and non-audit services provided by the auditor. They must establish procedures for the receipt, retention, and treatment of complaints received by the company regarding accounting, internal controls, and auditing, and each member must have authority to engage independent counsel or other advisor as it determines necessary to carry out its duties. When we get to the planning process of the audit plan, we're going to plan our engagement based on the assessment that we have made through the acceptance process. So we'll go through kind of the steps. I'm going to list out the steps that we're going to look at, and then we'll drill down on them a little bit in more detail. So when we plan the audit, we're going to assess the business risks. We're going to establish materiality thresholds that we're going to guide us through the audit. We're going to consider the if the uh, company has different locations and how we're going to deal with these different locations that we're going to be auditing. We're going to assess the need for uh, any kind of specialist that might be there. So uh, we might need different, we're of course specialists in accounting. We might need specialists to value different types of things. We want to consider any violations of laws and regulations that might come up through the auditing process. And we want to identify any kind of related parties that could be related to the company that we should consider within the auditing process. So business risk is going to be something we want to take a look at through the process. We've talked earlier about the idea of the audit risk. So the overall audit risk is the risk that we give a, a favorable opinion and there was a substantial material misstatement. That's going to be the audit risk. We want to reduce the audit risk. We're going to reduce the audit risk by getting a good understanding of the business, of its environment. We want to get understanding of, of the, just the general risk within the environment that the business is in, as well as the internal controls that the business is, is taking on in order to reduce its risk of material misstatement. In doing this process, we're going to identify certain accounts that might be higher risk type accounts. So for example, if we're going into a, a weaker economy or if there's some kind of new regulations or something like that, it could uh, make certain accounts be more risky, such as a revenue account might be more risky for, for that reason. Uh, if we have certain clients that are going to have cash flow problems of the company, then po possibly collection problems could be an issue, accounts receivable could be an issue. Therefore, we're going to set up our audit plan and focus in on those areas where we believe that the risk is going to be higher for material misstatement. Now we've thrown out this word material a lot. So material is going to be the fact that something is material if it's going to have an impact on the judgment of someone who is using the financial statements in order to make decisions such as an investor. So when we think about materiality, if we want to be really formal about it, and we do, we want to be specific about what is material and what is not. We want to be as specific as possible. We're going to actually have to set a materiality threshold. 
and in order to set a materiality threshold, we're actually going to say that, that we, this is a threshold that we believe is a tolerable misstatement. We're going to say this, this level will basically be the tolerable misstatement, and then we'll be able to dis decide what will be uh, a material and what will be immaterial. We will then focus our time on what we believe to be areas where there will be material misstatement problems that could occur. Now we'll talk more about how to set these thresholds uh, later, how to get to the materiality thresholds, but just be aware that we, we do want that materiality threshold. And as auditors, if something is determined to be immaterial, then we're definitely going to spend much less time on those activities, focusing on where the material activity will be. Now, if we're dealing with a company that has multiple locations or a company that has a consolidated financial statements, then they're going to have multiple areas. Then we need to assess where we're going to spend most of our time. So we're going to look through those areas and say, where's the highest risk of material misstatements within these different locations? Where do we want to physically go out and spend most of our times out in the field working? And we're going to have to decide and get, come up with some kind of uh, time frame in terms of where are we going to actually spend our time. We can do a lot of work in the office, of course. We can do an analytical type of work. We can do ratio analysis and all that kind of stuff. But we do want to go out there within the audit process and dig, dig deeper into uh, some of those substantive testing. And we need to determine where the best use of our time is when we have different locations in order to do that. When we assess the need for specialists, we know that we are, as accountants, we're the specialists in the accounting. And we're going to need to assess the need for specialists in different type of areas. Now, we may need specialists in things like IT, of course, because many large companies are going to have a lot of systems that will be connected and involved. And we're going to know the IT in order to know what the internal controls are doing and that kind of thing. But uh, we also have a lot of different areas. We might need valuation in terms of like inventory to see if it's at the lower of cost or market. And I audited a place one time where they had inventory that was cloth. And we had some really old cloth. It still looked good to me, you know, but it was from like the 70s or something. So is it still worth anything? I'm not sure. We're probably going to need some experts on that. We might need experts to value things like a building or something like that. Uh, we could need actuaries to value pension plans. Um, if there's a pending lawsuit or something that is out there, we may need some kind of valuation to see how likely it is that the lawsuit will happen and whether or not uh, what the value of the, of the lawsuit a lawsuit is uh, likely to be now when we consider illegal acts within the company what's our rule what's our policy in terms of detecting the illegal acts remember that our major goal for the financial statement is to report the financial statements uh, in a way that is fair that is free of material misstatements that's our major goal if there are illegal acts within the organizations that are directly related to the financial statements and that are materially affecting the financial statements then we have a responsibility to catch those just like we would a responsibility to catch an error that was uh, materially and directly related so if we're talking about something like an illegal act like uh, not reporting taxes or something like that then obviously that's that's going to be a tax law that's being violated directly uh, re related to the financial statements if it's something that's indirectly related to the financial statements but still something that uh, could have a material effect on the financial statements, then, then uh, we, we want to put in procedures basically to see if we can pick that up. If something like that comes to our attention, then we may increase the internal controls in order to be designed to be geared towards something specifically uh, like that, something like price fixing or if they, there's antitrust violations or something like that, then uh, that would not be directly affecting the financial statements per se, but it could definitely have a material impact on the financial statements and therefore 
uh, we might put some more types of procedures in there in order to detect that type of problem. Related parties are going to be relevant to the audit. So we want to detect whether there are any related parties in order to put that into the planning process uh, and to see what their relationships are within the party and within the audit. So related parties, of course, anything, if we had a subsidiary or something like that, if we had substantial ownership in some other type of, of entity, if, if the management has substantial ownership with affiliated groups and that kind of thing, uh, entities using an equity method in accounting investments. So for the equity method means that uh, when we record the stock transactions, investments in other companies, we're not recording that cost. We're using the equity method. Well, you only use the equity method if you have a substantial investment in the in the organization. Therefore, it would indicate that there that there's a substantial relationship there that we might want to dig down into. Uh, how could we find these types of relationships? Uh, one, we we're going to ask management about them. Are there any you know related party relationships? But we also want to review the board minutes and see if there's anything in there. We want to review large transactions. If there's large transactions that are taking place, like mergers or something like this, then that's areas that we often want to read through those transactions and we can find out information on there. If there's any conflicts that we can take a look at, the conflicts are often revealing in terms of uh, some, some related parties. We can review any significant transactions. So if there's large purchases or again, any kind of mergers or anything that's unusual in terms of the transactions that doesn't happen all the time, then those are usually transactions where it's worthwhile to, to dig down on, one, because they can re reveal information, and two, the fact that they're unusual means they're kind of outside the normal controls that, that happen and are more likely to be, have, be problematic for that reason. Then we're going to want to document audit strategies, plan, and the audit program. So we want to actually lay out what we're going to do now in the planning phase, taking all this into consideration. We want to consider the nature of the audit, the timing of the audit, the extent of the audit. Uh, we want to document the internal controls that we have seen so far when we looked at the business and the business environment, because those internal controls are going to be something that we're going to help us assess where we're going to focus our time, they're also going to help us assess how much testing we're going to do. So how much testing we're going to do and where we're going to do it is going to depend in part on the internal control. Stronger internal controls in certain areas means that we could probably do less testing in those type of areas. Uh, so then we're going to plan the documentation based on those internal controls. We also want to document the risk involved at this point. So we're going to document where we see the audit in terms of risk at the planning stage. If we're going to think about actually documenting the audit strategy, we may look at specific audit strategies and just list out those audit strategies and basically column by column. And, and it could look something like uh, listing the business strategy we have and possibly the business might have a strategy of, ex of expanding and uh, putting in a new department or something like that. And those depart if that's one of the plans and one of the strategies of the business and it's new, it might be something that we want to focus in on because it's something different. Uh, we could have business risk. We could have business uh, business risks within the industry could think, be things like the environment, the economy going up or down, could include regulations that could be happening. Uh, we could have economy affecting a substantial client to the company. So, so let's say the client might be having financial difficulties or we think they could be having financial difficulties. That could be a problem to our clients. So what would be the accounts that would be affected related to these issues? Uh, the revenue accounts might be affected if there's going to be a problem in the environment. Uh, the accounts receivable might be affected because we might be overstating accounts receivable uh, based on this information because the client might not be able to pay. And uh, so the so the audit risks, what are the risks for this uh, activities? 
Uh, one is that the accounts receivable might be overstated. So if, if we have receivables reported that we don't think can be paid by a substantial client that has outstanding balances, accounts receivable might be overstated. Revenue might be overstated. Uh, if we, what are some controls we can have over this? Well, uh, we, we might want to see what the client is doing in terms of recording accounts receivable, recording revenue, when do we, they record revenue, and when do they, how do they allocate when something is bad debt, how do they write off bad debt, do they have an allowance for doubtful accounts, and how do they value that. And we, then we might have the effect of the audit. What are we going to do in terms of the audit? Uh, you know, we might actually send out more confirmations on the account receivable. We might look into the, these large clients in terms of um, receivable balances that are that are large balances. We might look into them more deeply and and look into the finances of the individuals who have those large balances outstanding. We might recalculate the uh, allowance amount and see if that allowance amount is reasonable that they are reporting on the financial statement. Supervision of the audit. So the engagement partner and other supervisor members of the team are going to inform the engagement team members of their responsibilities. We're going to basically list through the responsibilities of the team. Of course, the leader of the team is going to then uh, divvy up what the responsibilities will be, giving the newer responsibilities probably to the team members that are going to have more experience or are going to be able to create uh, the new processes, giving the information that's going to be probably routine or the same from year to year or the information uh, that's going to be more uh, just drilling down numbers is probably going to go to some of the newer uh, individuals. When we look into the type of audit tests that we will conduct through the audits, we have to look at the objectives of the tests. And one of the objectives of the tests will be the tests of controls. And those types of tests are going to go through and test the actual processes. So we're going to actually go in, look at the process. We want to see what the process looks like in terms of recording things like the revenue. What's the process in terms of recording things like employee wages and uh, when the time is recorded and all that kind of thing. And then we've got substantive tests which are all probably the thing that most people really think of when they think of the actual audit procedure because those are usually the ones where the people, the auditors are out, out there, you know, digging through invoices and whatnot. Those are going to be things like we're going to take a sample size and go through and dig through and see if the balances are correct. Now, when we go through those, we're actually going to look at the actual transactions or we're going to be trying to verify actual account balances. So when we think about the test of controls, there's a couple types of procedures that we can look at in order to test the controls. Remember, these are like the processes that happened. We can do inquiry. We're going to do inquiry. We're going to ask management, what are your tests or controls? We're going to ask the key supervisors, what are the type of controls? What are the type of procedures that are involved here? If we're talking about the employees and how they record their wages and whatnot, then we'll actually talk to them and see how, you know, if they have a time clock, do they clock in, do they clock out? How is it going to be processed? How does that all go, go through? and we can ask them that. Then, of course, we could observe that. So that's going to be a higher level of check for us. We want to get the internal opinion, but us observing the action is going to be a more verification for that. So the observation of that, if we inquired about this process, and then we go through and actually observe it and say, okay, that is what's actually going on through the process. We can do kind of a walkthrough of the process. We can trace the transaction from the origin to its financial statements conclusion. So if we're thinking about the invoice, the actual creation of the invoice, the shipping of the of the inventory possibly, and then the process of recording the sale on the financial statements, we can go through that process and see uh, how that works. Uh, we can have a re-performance of certain types of things. So if there's certain types of calculations 
uh, we can rework them or we can we we can rework some types of problem uh, processes and see if we uh, go through the same process the same performance uh, we can have inspection we can inspect force documents and look through the documentation as well in order to test these tests of controls then based on these tests of controls we're going to do substantive testing so remember that when if we have good controls then we can rely on them more and do less of the substantive testing and the substantive testing again is probably the thing that most people really think about when they think of auditing because that's the one where you see the auditors coming in and actually you know doing stuff digging, <laughs> digging through things uh, looking through files pulling out invoices observing processes and, and stuff like that I mean we do do that in the test of controls through the observation and things like that too but the substantive tests are, are probably the ones where we're going to dig down on one transactions and two on account balances so we may actually test uh, certain transactions and see if there are errors within the transaction so if we're trying to see when revenue is recorded and whatnot then we can go there we can take a sample and we can go in and we can pull invoices and in, on the sample and really test on the transactions we can also go through basically just the balance sheet accounts and, and go through those accounts go through the income statement accounts see what's on uh, you know the, the financial statements and then verify those numbers in some way so if we you know if we're verified accounts receivable we might drill down through those receivables and see uh, when you know when it was recorded looking at the invoice and whatnot and then the payment process and if we're looking at the revenue we can do a similar process if we're looking at the uh, the fixed assets we might actually look through those transactions there are probably a lot less of those so we can actually uh, drill down on those transactions and get the documentation related to those transactions now note when we look at the financial statements we also have to look at the transactions because of course if we're drilling back on the financial statements we can find things that are reported on the financial statements incorrectly but what we have a problem with from that technique is that we don't see things that are not reported on the financial statements right so that's why we have to actually go through and dig through for stuff that's not on the financial statements as well we can also do analytical procedures so analytical procedures from the substantive test testing stage are going to be things that we can kind of do in the office. You can kind of think of analytical things of, of the things we can do in the office. And there's a lot of things we can do in you know in the office in terms of analytics. Obviously, the most basic thing we're going to do is compare this year's results to last year's results and see what the difference is. So we might take the income statement for this year, compare it to the income statement last year, see what the difference is, and do some kind of ratio analysis. And we might look into differences that are over a certain threshold or something like that. Those would be a typical typical type of analysis that we can uh, do we, we can do we can do ratio analysis for for different type of areas and, and determine uh, different things through the ratios and any trends that are unusual those are the ones that we probably want to dig into further now we like to talk about these control tests being different than the substantive tests but we could design the audit too of course to have some things that overlap which would be an efficient way to do things as well so if we're testing things like control if we're trying to test the controls and the processes of how revenue is recorded and, and related to the shipping documents uh, we can also use that information and kind of combine the two and have that part of our substantive testing too because we're going to want to be testing a sample of uh, the process of the revenue recognition as well so some of the tests that we can do could actually fall into the dual category there be part of our sample for the substantive test as well as testing the process in terms of how things are actually happening now I do want to touch in one more time this idea of materiality and the idea of materiality is important for us to be setting up within the planning stage remember that materiality means that uh, we have a, a certain amount of 
acceptable uh, misstatement or a misstatement level that we're saying is immaterial within the audit process. We're going to have to set that materiality threshold for the company as a whole, basically. There's no, no defined exact process to do that, but the, we're going to do that in a relative form in some way, usually based on sales. So usually it's going to be some type of thing on the percentage of sales. So what that means is it's, it's very relative to the size of the company, of course. If, if we're talking about a very large company that has a very large sales, and we take a percentage of the sales, like 2% of sales, and that's going to be our overall materiality threshold, then the materiality threshold is going to be a lot higher than if we took, you know, 2% of a small company. So the idea of materiality can be very relative, and this makes sense from large companies to small companies that we would have a, a higher threshold in terms of materiality. But when we're actually looking at an audit and we're looking at something that could potentially be an error, and uh, we're not looking into it as much as we think, and we're looking at it personally and saying, hey, that's a big dollar amount, compared to what I would think is a big dollar amount, uh, and a supervisor could say, hey, no, that's below, that's well below the materiality threshold. We need to be spending our time on other types of things, other types of things that are, have a, a higher potential to have a material misstatement. Once we have the overall material threshold for the audit, then we also need to de determine the tolerable misstatement per account. So we're going to go in through each process of the testing and see what the tolerable misstatement will be per account, per transaction as we go through. the audit process.